This is Isaac Raber, Father Isaac Raber. I'm the rector here at All Saints. We're doing something a little bit different on the podcast today. I'm, I'm interviewing today my friend, Dr. Chris Richardson. He's the rector of um, a Covenant Anglican Church in San Marcos, Texas, and he is a uh, scholar on the book of Hebrews. Uh, Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about your uh, your, your your book that you did, um, which which has uh, gotten you on the map here and there. Here and there is right. Well, first of all, thank you, Isaac, for having me. Uh, this is a lot of fun to be able to do this. Finally, you and I can connect and talk about the best book of the Bible, <laughs> which we know is Hebrews. Um, well, the way the way my scholarship started on this was going back to my seminary days, looking at the theme of uh, perfection in Hebrews. And then that translated into my Ph.D. Uh, thesis at the University of Aberdeen in, Scot- in Scotland, where I looked at the motif of Jesus' faith and faithfulness in the Epistle to the Hebrews, and then I eventually published that um, through Morzebik uh, out of Tübingen, Germany. So it was a Christological study, and I went into a lot of different books other than Hebrews, but Hebrews were where I was hanging my hat, so to speak. I was able to skim a little bit of that online. Um, you'll, you, you can find about 60 of the 300-some pages um, uh, through uh, Google Books online right now. Yeah. And then there's all sorts of ways you can buy that, Amazon, various places. Sometimes it pops up in a, in a German title, which is which is funny. But uh, I don't know. Oh, and I haven't seen that. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know if they it, translated into German or if that's just part of the. the oh, I know where that's no the, uh, more Zebek because it's Germany based. I think they when they advertise, they have it one in English and one in German. That makes uh, sense. So that that's that's out there. <laughs> that's great. Well, t- but, tonight begins the feast of the Ascension. Yes. And um, unfortunately, I've, I found that's something that is. Uh, often neglected by a lot of Christians, um, both popularly, liturgically. It falls on a Thursday. Um, yes. I, I think that uh, a lot of churches just transfer to the nearest Sunday. From what I understand, the uh, Roman Catholics kind of leave that up to the bishops. And for them, it's a holy day of obligation, which means that um, it is a mortal sin to miss it. So if, <laughs> so if, if you're... I heard, a, I heard a Catholic guy yeah. talking about this one time. He said, okay, so if I'm traveling... If I'm, if I'm in Italy and I happen to be in the city of Rome on one day when they are not holding the Mass, but I go into the Vatican itself on another day when they are having that Mass, because Rome itself and the Vatican are on different cycles for, the, for yes. when, when it's the Holy Day of Obligation, um, I could miss it either way, or I could, do, I could be obligated both ways. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an odd situation for our Roman friends. But uh, uh, yeah, so it, it is a bit neglected, and I think... The Ascension is so much um, more important to our theology and our, our soteriology than we often understand. Yes, it is. And um, I was just thinking, gosh, Hebrews talks about that a lot. And so who better to talk to than, uh, than you? <laughs> well, I, appreciate, I mean, there are a lot of guys that are even, um, I hope this goes without saying, that are much more conversant on that theme and more of an expert than I am um, on, on issues of Hebrews. But I will say you're absolutely right. It's, it's interesting to me that the ascension from a biblical theological standpoint doesn't receive more attention than it does. Right. Because that is, that's essentially when we talk about issues of fulfillment and climax, we oftentimes relegate that to the domain of, and, and rightly so in one, in one sense, the death and resurrection of Jesus. But interestingly, when you look at 
Hebrews, and you even get this in part in Acts, for example, in Acts chapter 2, how quickly resurrection gets subsumed under the language of ascension and enthronement. And so most of the language that the author of Hebrews uses is not language of resurrection per se. When I say resurrection, of course, you have the classic text in Hebrews 13, 20, talking about being brought again from the dead, mm-hmm. our great shepherd of the sheep. Uh, that's the one explicit reference to the resurrection of Jesus. Everywhere else in Hebrews, it's the ascension motif. It is language of enthronement and exaltation, i.e. ascension, that you find. And that's and it's intriguing because the author, of course, integrates that within the broader Christology and soteriology of the book. I was uh, reading um, some commentaries from the church fathers, different fathers. I mean, mm. obviously, you say the church fathers, and that can mean a bunch of different things. Yeah. They very rarely were monolithic on, on anything. But one of the common themes I saw was that many of them talked about the um, how the in the ascension our human nature gets exalted yeah because Christ is still a man exactly oh, okay so now we're really we're now we're, we're getting to the good stuff real quick <laughs> so I constantly in fact I think I did it on um, I did it during my last sermon or the one before that was talking about a little a little bit of that motif and I said keep in mind when we talk about the ascension of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, when we think of ascension, let's be clear what we mean is post-resurrection, the Son of God, but the Son incarnate. Mm-hmm. So this is, not, this is not the ascension of the pre-existent Son. This is the ascension of the resurrected, glorified, perfected God-man. The incarnate son. So when, when, you, when you speak in that type of language with that distinction, you recognize that something climactic has happened in redemptive history with the ascension in and of itself as, as a particular uh, distinctive in our theology is that Jesus, so once you use the name Jesus, you're no longer just speaking about the son. You're speaking of that what's predicated on the reality of him being incarnate. Right. As the Son of God. So Jesus is predicated on the reality of his humanity. So Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus our Messiah, has ascended. That means body and spirit and his divine and human nature together in hypostatic union being ascended to the right hand of the Father in perfect power and authority. That's very different than just saying uh, he was raised from the dead. Right, right. Uh, It just gives it, it gives the vindication motif a lot more oomph, so to speak, when we start digging into then what exactly does that look like and what does it mean, you know, the so-called, the so what of it all, you know, why does it matter kind of a thing. What, What are some of the implications that that has for us as those who have been united to Christ? Yeah. Okay. Well, that that's a well. You're asking some good ones already coming out of the gate. So, it, yeah, it matters in every respect because what's what's true of Jesus is going to be true of us. Now, minus his unique inheritance as the God Man and him being the heir of all things, as we read in the in the opening chapter, and him sitting at the right hand of the Father. Well, of course, we do not have that preeminent position as creatures, and even those being united to Christ, we're not God. Uh, we're not the son of God, even though we're sons, adopted sons and children. Uh, but it, its implications are far-reaching from the standpoint of, for example, to give just one clear um, proof text here, when you get to Hebrews chapter 2, 
and it talks about in leading or bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting, as the author says, to first perfect the pioneer of salvation through sufferings. Now, why is he going down that motif of a theology of suffering? Because as he has said in the previous verse, that it was on account of his suffering of death that he was crowned with glory and honor. Okay, again, that's the coronation exaltation motif that started back in chapter one. He's going to develop it through the rest of the book. But the, the difference with this particular verse in, chap, in uh, verse 10 is that he is perfecting, as he did first perfect the pioneer of salvation, he's perfecting his children, those who are united to Christ, who are saved in Christ, who are adopted sons and daughters of the king. He's bringing us to that same telos or same goal of perfection that Jesus himself um, enjoys and and participates in. This is and it's funny because uh, someone had uh, jokingly pointed out to me they thought it was humorous for some reason. Then we get to chapter six, and the author you know talks about the elementary teachings. We're not going to go back and talk about the elementary teachings again. And one of them was the resurrection from the dead and all of that. And you know we're still thinking, yeah, I guess that is an elementary teaching. But I think. <laughs> Uh, but but what he means by that is yeah that's we'll start with that but uh, the resurrection of course is going to be tying in with our own concept or our own reality of being perfected in the sun and being brought to that place of perfection and glorification that unshakable kingdom that he mentions in chapter twelve you know the things that will remain and persist and um, maintain permanence so yeah it has implications uh, tremendously for us and he uses our suffering. Um, just as just as as his suffering was part of that, f- yeah. for, for for his pioneer, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Wow. I mean, that's, hard, I, that's hard to hear as Americans sometimes. It is. I mean, it's we love we love the uh, name it claim it, you know, uh, health wealth element, and love to put everything under um, the banner of blessing when things go well or things are favorable in that in that respect. But interestingly, um, I think if you were to go back to the first century context, you know, when they're released from prison, the apostles, you know, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Uh, that is a theology of suffering that doesn't get a lot of airtime. You know, and even Paul says when you get into Romans uh, chapter 8 that we will reign with him if indeed the language is very specific if indeed we first suffer with him. Mm. So the, the path that our Savior has trod and the, the, the path that he has blazed for us is not one that we are able, uh, as his children, to sidestep. Uh, in other words, if we're going to reign with him, we must suffer with him. It's necessary in some respects. Now, that's going to that's gonna look very different from person to person, culture to culture, in terms of type and, and in terms of degree. But as Christians, hey... You know, before the uh, the crown is the cross, and Jesus had to do that, and we have to do it as as disciples. And again, that's going to be a multifaceted uh, picture that gets developed in our own individual lives. But that's exactly you're you're hitting the nail on the head in terms of what what the author is doing with that motif of suffering. I think Luther called that the uh, theology of the cross versus the Absolutely. theology of glory. Absolutely, absolutely. Two two of the uh, the things we we look at classically with the ascension are Jesus as our high priest mm-hmm. and Jesus as our king. Mm-hmm. So um, 
what, what does Hebrews have to say about uh, those? <laughs> That's, isn't, isn't that a small question? <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that, Isaac. Um, well, that's right. So you, you have, and of course, the point of reference is Melchizedek. Right. You know, the, uh, the paradigm, if you will, the king priest, and then uh, Jesus being likened to that and in, in employing Psalm 110. The, the interesting thing that I've always been captivated by with respect to Hebrews is the way the book starts where you think it's all about the priesthood. So, I mean, everyone, you know, if you have to say, well, what's the book of Hebrews about? Even looking at that king-priest connection, they're by default going to say, well, it's about Jesus as our priest and making sacrifice for sins, and rightly so. I mean, that dominates the book. Funny, though, that Hebrews chapter 1 is dominated not by the priestly motif, but by the royal motif. Mm, interesting. I, I so the, the majority of the references in chapter 1 that are uh, Old Testament texts that are cited are royal psalms. Mm-hmm. It's the royal um, imagery, if you will, that King David anticipating the Davidic king, the Messiah, mm-hmm. and it's the Davidic king theme of fulfillment that dominates chapter 1. So now you do get in, cha- in chapter 1, verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So you have both elements. You have self-sacrifice in the air arena of purification. Of course, he's going to develop that through the book, especially starting in 2.17. Um, but the session motif in verse 3, which is going to anticipate the explicit citation of Psalm 110 in verse 13 is 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 saturated all through all throughout in that entire chapter of this idea of the Davidic king in fulfillment of scripture and in fulfillment of this promised one to come case in point second uh second Samuel 7:14 you know sitting on the throne of David mm-hmm. uh, Psalm 45 your throne O God is forever and ever referring to the son uh, which is a which is a very good uh, proof text for the deity of Christ, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, because that, of course, is referring to um, the Lord Yahweh in the Old Testament, but now it's being applied with respect to the Son, and it's talking about the throne motif. And then you have, of course, Psalm one ten: "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet," which is the one that Jesus himself employs during his earthly ministry, who, when he's talking to his antagonist, who, who's David referring to here? Right. You know, it make, make sense of this. Uh, so Jesus applies it to himself. Then, of course, in Acts, Psalm 110 is quoted, and the author of Hebrews places a lot of emphasis and attention on Psalm 110 because he is our priest, but he's also our king, the Davidic king. And of course, in the in the creed, we we say that he's you know, when we talk about the ascension, he sitteth at the right hand of the Father. Yeah. And so, um, what is the sitting? Uh, how does the how does the sitting uh, um, yes. relate to the to the royalty? Well, yeah. So the, the the session motif is, I think it has it has two two elements actually. One is is a royal motif, and another one, interestingly, is related to the priesthood. Right. Right. In in part, is. Obviously, he's crowned with glory and honor. He is seated, if you will, in the place of preeminent glory and authority and power and dominion. So this is one who is rightly receiving uh, his inheritance, according to chapter 1, the name above all names, uh, becoming the heir of all things, and now he is seated in this place of supreme honor 
um, in authority over all things. So again, who, who are we speaking about? The God-man who is glorified and perfected and is now at the right hand of the Father. This is the God-man who's now exercising eschatological lordship and rule over all of creation, the present world and the world to come, Hebrews 2.5. So heaven and earth, all dominions, powers, and authorities are now subjected to him. Um, he has rule over them, and he's waiting till that time when they are um, once and for all wiped out, if you will. So that, that motif of, of reign and rule. But then the second is when you get into chapter 10, it makes an interesting contrast between the old priests and their work of standing every, right. e- every day, offering the same sacrifices that cannot take away sins, contrast. And when Jesus had offered for all time a sacrifice for sins, he sat down. So what is that signifying? The work is completed. So the session is, is one about um, royal authority and rule, you know, as our king, as our Messiah. But then the second image that you have with the contrast is Jesus isn't standing day in and day out, performing the same sacrifices day in and day out, year after year, like the Day of Atonement. Uh, he offered himself once and for all, uh, for all time. So you have Hebrews 7.27 and Hebrews 10.12 um, doubling down on that. And when he finished that work, of making substitutionary atonement for the sins of humanity, he doesn't continue to stand, he sits, which is a notion of cessation. And, that, and that's something that our communion liturgy as Anglicans has, has traditionally always emphasized, one oblation yes. once offered. Um, that's right. And I'm, I'm not quoting it exactly. I think I would. I do this like a hundred times a year. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, and it even repeats right. it, it uh, does, that, yeah. that one oblation. Yeah. 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 That's it, which, which is interesting. I mean, it, it, um, this is a bit of a side kind of, kind of liturgics. That's, that's, that's my area of geekdom right there. But, um, in the, in the new, uh, ACNA's liturgy in the standard Anglican text, which I really like as, as a, um, modern rendering of the traditional Anglican liturgy, um, it, it, it does repeat oblation, um, they do the punctuation a little bit different than the traditional text. Slightly different. Yeah, and, and in the traditional text, they put that second citing of oblation in, in parentheses, um, and they don't, which has led some people to say, oh gosh, that's a little, that's a little redundant. But if yes. they would have kept it the old way, it wouldn't be redundant. It, it just right. drives the point home the way it's supposed to. No, and, and you know, what you're saying is implicitly, and I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, there's good redundancy and there's bad redundancy. Right. And, and, if, and if, you were, if you were going to be redundant on a particular theological theme or Christological theme, uh, you could do far worse than the sacrifice of Christ. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and so when, you know, I've, and I had this conversation with someone um, recently that there are only three times in the epistle to the Hebrews in which this language of once for all is used. And now, let me clarify that. In, in the Greek text, when it's ephapox, so not just hapox, but ephapox, which is a, the intensive form um, to underscore once and once only, you know, only one time, once for all time, once for all, is how we would translate it. It's only used three times in Hebrews, that, that particular word. Now, hapox is used, you know, throughout the book, but... Um, Ephapox is used with respect to Jesus' self-sacrifice, 727. The second one, related to our topic here today, the ascension. Okay. 
okay. going into uh, the holy the holy places, Hebrews nine twelve. That he goes he goes into the heavens, goes into the holy places, not made with hands, once and for all. Uh, and then the third application, F Apox, is the benefits and blessings that are appropriated to God's people as a result of his sacrifice and his subsequent ascension, and that's being sanctified once and for all. Hebrews ten ten. So there's there's three times when he uses that, and it's all related to the death ascension, and then the application of that finished work to the believer. That um, has some big implications regarding huge. imputation. Yes, it does. Yeah, wow, wow, versus, versus yes. infusion. Yes, I heard uh, one, of, one of our parishioners uh, put it, put it one I thought that was pretty good. He said, uh, um, imputation is, is, is if he gives you, a, if, if the Lord gives you a new robe, whereas infu, infusion is like if he gives you a bottle of bleach. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, I get that, yep, yep. <laughs> So, uh, well, again, kind of, kind of liturgically, um, the uh, the colic for the ascension, at least the way it is in um, in, in our Anglican uh, circles. I don't recall if this is the way it was before the Reformation or not, but um, it, it talks about um, may we now then in heart thither ascend uh, to Him, which reminds me all the time. I think it's supposed to of the Sursum Corda in the liturgy: hmm. "Lift up your hearts." Yes. Um, yep. And so there, there's some. It seems to me that there's some ascension implications to um, our spiritual ascension, yeah. um, which which previews something more later, right? Where were we driving with that one? Like, oh. where, what did you have in mind? <laughs> like, I'm, 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 I'm trying to track with oh, you in um, terms of where you want to take this one. Well, I mean, I mean, there's there's a few ways. I mean, I, I know in in one sense, you know, that's that's kind of where. Um, Calvin's Eucharistic theology versus Luther's comes into play there. Right. Um, we, we can go there if you want. It's, 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 I, I, I find, I, I personally find that a bit too picky of discussions to, right. to be dogmatic about the way that unfortunately both Luther and Calvin were. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think, I think there's some other implications to that too, beyond the Eucharistic, uh, implications. You mean just personal piety? Right. In terms right, of, right. how about prayer? Yeah. Are we talking, yeah, if we want to even talk about prayer, theology of prayer? I mean, it's, I was going to say it's, there's a tension, but it's not a tension. Um, and I, I think that word is overused. There's not a tension, but there's a balance in, even with respect to our liturgy, lift up your hearts. Well, in one respect, we're exhorting one another in the congregation to ascend, if you will, spiritually. But in, in another sense, we're already ascended. Right. In Christ. And so when, when you talk about not just the finished work of Christ, but union with Christ, and I know I'm bringing a little bit of uh, Pauline import here, you know, but, uh, but even Hebrews has this language of being uh, metakoi, sharers in Christ. So there is, similarly to Paul, this idea of relational union, relational uh, sharing and togetherness that... In one respect, those who are in Christ, who are united with Christ, who are saved in Christ, already, again to use Paul's language, are already seated with him in the heavenly realms and share in that victory because of our connection through the Holy Spirit and through the risen Savior and through um, uh, that inseparable connection that we had, that we are raised and ascended with him spiritually. So by saying, lift up your hearts, it's saying, in a sense, Work out who you already are, right? Because we already uh, have those pledges and assurances. Exactly, the, of the Holy Spirit through the resurrection of Christ as the absolutely. Sort of thing. So it's 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 more 
you know, remember who you are. Yeah, yeah. Not just remember who Jesus is. Remember what He's done for you. Remember who you are in Him and the victory that you already have in Him and your ascension and uh, union with Him now. So what we're what we're doing is practicing for the consummation of that reality. Hence, again, coming back to the perfection uh, theme that runs all through. It's, well, in one respect for Hebrews, he can have the perspective that, according to Hebrews 10, 14, that we are perfected for all time now, but we're still waiting for the perfection, that unshakable kingdom, to come later. And so is that attention? No, it's not attention. It's, it's simply talking about the already, not yet. Yeah. So hence, lift up your hearts, ascend, rise up, so to speak, you know, look up, uh, because in one sense, you're already there. Um, and that's, and I know I'm, there's a lot of theological assumptions that go into that, uh, namely the security of the believer, which, sure, sure. which I will, I will go down fighting for that one. And you, you know, you know me, brother, that, because I think, I think a lot's at stake with that. Yeah. Uh, but that that would be one application I see in it. That's that's an important one. Is when we're saying lift up your hearts, or um, and I'm using this uh, ascension uh, with respect to the believer, kind of a lowercase a. Right. You know, right. Um, we're we're doing so out of the reality that we already have. And we're going and we're going to consummate that reality at a later date. Or Jesus is. I've been, um, we've been doing uh, the sacraments through um, the catechism in, uh, in, our, in our Wednesday night classes. Some of y'all that listen to this podcast will have heard some of those teachings. Uh, but but one, of, one of the things that I, I really appreciate about um, our particular traditions, older catechism form um, that is expanded in the ACNA one, um, but also kind of in its, in its more original forms in the, in the older form of books, Books of Common Prayer. But um, when it talks about our, our sacramental theology, this idea of the sacraments as tokens and pledges, yep. um, you know, how, how do I know I'm a Christian? Well, I, I know I'm a Christian because I've been baptized. Well, what if I don't look like a Christian even right. though I've been baptized? Well, right. then you need to repent because that's who you are. <laughs> that's right. You know, how do, how do I know I'm united with Christ because you've come to his table? What if I don't feel like it? Well, then you need to repent. <laughs> <laughs> Stop relying on your feelings. Right, yeah. right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think, I, yeah, that's, and the, yeah, all of the Ascension stuff really, to me, is, is further uh, evidence for that, for, for, yep. for driving that point home some more that we do get in, in the sacraments. Yeah, I agree with that. So if you, if you were going to give um, kind of the, the, the everyday uh, Christian who, um, you know, not particularly, uh, uh, doesn't have maybe formal theological training, but, it, but is faithful in their Bible, faithful in, in church, um, just just trying to trying to work out their salvation, as Saint Paul saith. Yep. Um, uh, uh, what what the uh, significance kind of on a, on an applicational level of the ascension might be? Um, what, what what would you say to them? Well, I would say two things. One, with the ascension, we have we have the assurance that Jesus has finished the work that the Father gave him to do. And that he has fulfilled scripture in accordance with the Father's purposes. And we are now exhorted with joy to now come into his presence with great confidence, 
with, with that assurance that he has finished the work that the Father gave him to do, and he has fulfilled Scripture. He is the climax of redemptive history, as we like to say. So according to Hebrews 4, it says, therefore let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. You know, and even why is it, you don't feel like it? Even when you don't feel like it, because and whether or not you perceive that it's the case that Jesus is, or you don't feel like Jesus is intimately concerned with your own life, well, in that same context, it's we have a high priest who didn't simply make sacrifice for sins, but is who is sympathetic to our plight. He says, We do not have a priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who's been tested in every respect and yet was sinless. In other words, when we speak about Jesus in his ascended state, in his glorified state, we're not speaking about approaching a throne of indifference. Jesus does not sit on the throne of indifference or idleness in the sense of he is not concerned with the plight of his people. He's sitting down, he's popping grapes, he's being, <laughs> he's being waited upon, and it, it is somewhat detached. It's, it's funny how we can become very practical deists very, right. very quickly. But the image that you have with respect to the ascension is this assurance that God's people have to approach him with confidence, knowing that he's sympathetic to our weakness and sympathetic to the race that we're currently running that he's already finished for us as the pioneer. Uh, We can come into that later. Uh, But who endured the cross and he finished the race uh, in first place. And we have have that confidence to come before him. And And then I think the second thing related to that is that that ascension is never divorced from his intercession. So in the same way that we have the God man who has ascended and is seated on the throne, we have the God-man who bids us to come into his presence with joy and confidence. And as he bids us to come with that confidence, knowing that he is actively interceding for his bride. Now, what does that look like? I don't really know. Because, <laughs> but, but what I do know is this. Um, intercession, I know some, some scholars... Um, may scoff at this, and I I hope that they don't, but intercession could be simply that just his mere presence to the Father is enough of intercession, like this ever-present reminder of what Jesus did for his people, but at the same time, he has a human body. And I gave a sermon one time, this was years and years ago, and and some people probably remember this, where I said, if Jesus is active in his intercession, he's actively interceding with his resurrected vocal cords. Oh, interesting. And, and I had someone on the front row give this kind of snarl like, oh, isn't that the, the height of eisegesis? You know, like he just kind of rolled his eyes like, as if I was being, I was being dramatic. But I, but, and, I, and I kind of had to stop myself and say, yeah, it's dramatic, uh, but is it wrong? Um, necessarily, implicitly, is it wrong? I mean, Jesus comes before his heavenly Father to intercede for his people, and he does so as the resurrected, ascended Lord of all creation. And keep in mind what the scene is, even from Hebrews and, and other books, this is, this is an active environment where angels, and we say it in our liturgy all the time, right. with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, as we say it every Sunday, what are we saying? We're participating in a heavenly reality that if God were to remove the veil 
so to speak. We get revelation (laughs) for. And we would see that there is a worship and an activity and a, dare I say, liturgy that's taking place in the heavenly realms that we are told come and participate. But part of that is Jesus actively interceding as the ascended, enthroned God-man. And that personalizes it uh, in terms of the talk, what we're talking about, the, the so what for the average believer right. is you have complete access to the Savior. Approach him with confidence. His work is finished. Scripture is fulfilled with respect to those issues that we were talking about. And now he bids, bids you and I to come with confidence and joy because he's actively interceding for us. He's actively in the process of bringing his children to that same goal, that same state of perfection that awaits those who are united to Christ and in Christ. And so the so what is, as you run, as the author says, keep your eyes fixed on the one who's actively always interceding on behalf of his people, Hebrews 7, 25, um, who's actively involved in bringing us to that same goal of glory, and by his grace, we'll get there. We've got an icon in the, um, in the chancellery in our parish that uh, on the gospel side that is titled Christ the High Priest, mm-hmm. and it has him, uh, Jesus, vested in a chasuble, Oh wow! Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like to see that. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's trying to bring in that you know for for Western Christians, even though it's an icon, which is more of an Eastern thing, but written by a Western guy, I guess. But yeah, it has a has that very familiar um, uh, depiction to drive that point home, which is right. pretty neat, I, I think. And and that and that reminds me of you know when I'm I'm reading uh, the epistle from uh, first first Peter right now, uh, where 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 Peter talks about him as the uh, both the shepherd and the bishop of our souls. Yeah. And yeah, like that. that's, that's a that's great image. I, one thing I, I want to stress, I think when we when we talk about the ascension of Christ, sometimes I, I guess it's a concern or a fear that I have. I, I, I suppose with any theological or Christological doctrine that that we entertain, is is not to forget the highly relational element to it. This is not simply a theological transaction that's taking place in redemptive history. We use a lot of theological terms of this happens and then after this it's this and then you know you have justification, sanctification. You know we can we can talk in terms of theological transactions, but in the ascension in particular of what's really happening is Jesus, according to Hebrews nine twenty four, is coming into. I think the ESV says into the presence of God. Well, it's the language is before the face of God. Yeah, it's quorum Deo, you know, in Latin, it's coming before the face of God, and the caveat to that is coming before the face of God into the presence of God, and the language he uses is on our behalf, and that's not that's not a insignificant or irrelevant addendum. It's on our behalf when he ascends. He's ascending for the sake of his people coming before the presence of his Father, before the face of his Father, to intercede before the Father for us. It's relationships. Is that he loves us. You know, this, the, the day of ascension is Jesus being vindicated, Jesus being glorified, Jesus being perfected for us on our behalf in order to bring his people those whom he has he has set his affection upon to bring them to that same goal of quorum deo, which is 
why we were created. You know, the, the recreative motif in the Bible hasn't changed the original creational motif, which is to walk with God right. and to see God and to behold God. In fact, that's how Revelation ends, and we will see his face. Um, well, that's only possible if Jesus accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do, and if Jesus saw his face as our pioneer and perfecter to bring us to that same, that same goal. So... And it's interesting how all the intercession language, the before the face of God language, that's all very present tense stuff. Very much. Whereas the sacrifice is past tense things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and that, yeah, I think that's that's absolutely super important. And and I, and that also points to why the ascension is an essential aspect of the gospel, even though sometimes we forget that when we're summarizing it. Why it is in all the creeds is because of that for you aspect. It is. The gospel is always for you. I think uh, Luther was fond of saying that's how you can tell the gospel is because it's for you. I like that. And, um, and if it's not for you, it's probably the law, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which, which yeah. is for you too, but it's a different kind of thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's a different podcast yeah, right there. We podcast. could, I'd love to talk about that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, let, let's, I guess let's bring it home with the, uh, the, yep. the pioneer. All right. The can, aspect. That's fine. What, what do you want me to say? <laughs> uh, it is the title of my book, pioneer and perfecter of faith. Uh, that's the first part of the title. Um, so yeah, he uses it in Hebrews 2.10, and then again, this language of, or pioneer, archegos, he uses it, uh, 2.10 and then 12.2, has that kind of dual, um, meaning of a leader and an originator or founder. So you'll see some English translations translated as founder of our salvation or right. founder uh, of our faith, but it also has, uh, the language like he uses in chapter six, verse 20 of the forerunner. Um, who goes before us. So leader, originator, kind of conflate them together because both themes appear in, in the book. So pioneer is a good translation. Um, I just wish every English translation would just say pioneer because it gets, it gets to both meanings, rightly yeah. so, yeah, that's um, good. In, in that. But yeah, he's the pioneer and perfecter uh, of faith itself uh, and as well as our faith. But uh, one of the things that I argue in the book, and I know some people may not like the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm saying, hey, it's, it's, it shouldn't be translated pioneer perfecter of our faith. You know, the personal pronoun is not in the text. Right. It has to be inferred. Um, and so you have to read my book to understand why yeah, I'm, so I'm, yeah, we, we, I'm... We can't I'm, get too terribly technical. I'm not going to get too technical, but the, the bottom line is this. If Jesus is not the pioneer and perfecter of faith itself, the virtue of faith itself, then he can't be the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Right. And that's, that's the bottom line, is there's a reason why the author of Hebrews is underscoring his sinlessness in, along with his faithfulness to the Father and his trust in the Father uh, for him to be the pioneer and perfecter of faith who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Uh, yeah, he has to be the perfect exemplar of faith, but he's not simply an exemplar. Uh, he is in that uh, domain. He's what I call the efficacious exemplar. So, oh, that's a cool term. Yeah, and I, 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 I thought that was a good way of kind of bringing that together to say he's not simply an example where we say be like Jesus. Uh, well, there's a place for that in part, but he's the efficacious example, and he's the perfect efficacious example who thus is able um, in his perfect sinlessness and perfect faithfulness to be the pioneer perfecter of our faith. But I think that the author rightly leaves out 
that personal pronoun of our because he's wanting in some respects to be a little deliberately ambiguous because he's been developing both themes about bringing us to that goal and, and also Jesus as the supreme exemplar of faith and faithfulness. Uh, but they both, again, that's where you can't divorce Christology from ecclesiology. Right. You know, they go hand in glove. And, and I know this is something that um, I, I, I'm pretty sure they got more from Romans than, than Hebrews, but all of our, our, our Protestant confessions, including the 39 articles, um, do make that point about faith. Yes. That, that, that it has its, its origin in Christ. Yes. Um, it is a gift. It's not something that we can we just, just follow on, but we are actually given it. Yes. Um, you know, for, for those keeping a score at home, I think we're looking at articles 10 and 11 in the 39 articles. Um, but, but yeah, this is... And, and when we look at our collects, they often have this idea of, okay, Jesus has done this. So now this is who we are, and therefore we need to go follow and do what he did. Mm-hmm. And, and this, the, the, the example is always wedded to what he has done for us. Right. And, and the change that he made in us because of what he's done for us. Not exactly. Just, not just being an example. Exactly. Yeah, when, once you, you relegate it to a, a mere example, uh, well, part of the danger in that is you're not going to be able to imitate that example. Right. Uh, you're, you're setting up the stand. I mean, we're called to pursue perfection and we're called be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But if it's simply a form of moral uh, imitation, well, that quickly goes to moralism that quickly sets up for despair, disappointment and, and depression in all of its forms. But yeah, you have, you have to go that next step and yeah. say, it's not merely an example or you, you're going to, you're going to want to jump off the boat. Yeah. Yeah. The, the end of, the end of legalism and moralism is always one of two things, either Pharisees who redefine the law so they can keep it yeah. or the licentious, the, 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 yep. the, the extreme reprobates who just abandon yep. any sense of it because they can't keep it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Wow. Wow. Well, this, this has been excellent. This, this is, is fun, uh, this man. It's been a lot of fun. We're going to have to do this again sometime. I, uh, <laughs> anytime, my brother. I, I mean, this, right. I think we're, we're just scratching the surface. I mean, we, uh, we could we could talk about a whole bunch of stuff. Oh yeah, but yeah. you and I've known each other for a while, so that, that is we, true. We Absolutely, could jump into all that. And I, and I will. Uh, yeah, I definitely want to do more of this on our on our parish podcast, and uh, and we will make this available in all the different places. So uh, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, because we're on just about all of them nowadays. We finally got to <laughs> iTunes. Took a, took a long time, but we finally <laughs> got to iTunes, and uh, and uh, we'll see what we can do. Um, and so um, I'll let you actually go ahead and pray us out if you would. Uh, sure. Be great. Well, thanks for having me again, Isaac. Um, I appreciate your brother. Well, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you and praise you for your blessings upon us today and the blessings that you have bestowed upon us in your beloved son. And we ask that you would continue to sanctify us, our minds and our hearts, that we might be conformed to the image of your beloved. And pray that we would glorify you in all things and that you would be pleased in our words and deeds, even today. For the sake of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.